Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I love hearing people's stories. And one of the things that I'll hear in people's stories some of the times is they'll say, you know what, I really, I really didn't like the church and I really didn't like God or I really don't like God, I really don't like Jesus because when I was a kid, my parents made me go to church. They made me go to church. Even if my heart wasn't in it, even if I didn't wanna go, they still made me go to church. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay. Um, and then they'll share the story. I, I won't say anything in return, but, but what I'm asking in my head and in my heart is, did your mean parents also make you go to school? Like when you didn't wanna go to school, when your heart wasn't in it, when you weren't passionate about going to school, did they still make you go to school? When, you, when your heart wasn't in cleaning your room or, or doing your chores or, or you know, eating healthy food instead of just pounds of sugar, you know, when your heart wasn't in it, did they still make you do those things? I hope they did because that's what good parents do. You, you see, when, when we think about, and, and again, I know there's a lot of different stories, so it's hard to, to cast a broad net, but, but we should be thankful for parents who raised us going to church because they are accountable to God for our spiritual care. And so the problem maybe wasn't with your parents, maybe the problem was with you and with your heart towards God and towards his church. I know as a kid, uh, my parents made me go to church every Sunday, and I wasn't angry about it towards them um, because I was trying to build my own religious resume and look good for other people, which is also not a good reason to go to church. Uh, but to be honest with you, I hated church. Church was my least favorite part of the week. The later that we could come and the sooner we could arrive, the better. I just, I didn't want anything to do with church. That's where I was at, but I kept going. And, and, and as I grow up, what I realized is you know, the problem wasn't my parents. The problem was me. The problem was my heart. I was rebellious against God and I didn't really want anything to do with God. You see, here's the point is that uh, the difference between childhood and adulthood is that a child will follow their heart and their passions wherever it leads them and takes them. They'll just go crazy on that. But an adult as as we grow into adulthood, we'll seek to be faithful to do what is right and what is good, and what the Lord commands, even when our heart is not in it. And we will pray, Lord Jesus, may our heart catch up with our actions. You see, two people could participate in the exact same Christian practices commanded by God in the exact same way, with the exact same regularity, and yet one person could practice these things with bitterness and drudgery, because it's all about them. And another person practices these things with great joy and delight because it is all about God. Today, Jesus is going to focus us on two Christian practices, two Christian practices that are a gift from God, two Christian practices that, to be frank, are unpopular in American Christianity. 
Two Christian practices that we often neglect because in our heart we don't understand that these are Christian practices given to us by God to bring us closer to God. The two Christian practices that Jesus addresses today are the practices of fasting and Sabbathing. Fasting and Sabbathing. So if you would please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We will be in page 837 in the Red Bible. Again, just a reminder, Jesus is in uh, his ministry in the region of Galilee, and he is teaching, he is healing, he is feasting with sinners and tax collectors. And now he comes to Christian practice, these practices of fasting and Sabbathing. And and Jesus uh, Jesus really goes into these to show the beauty and the heart and the joy of of, of participating in these Christian practices of fasting and of Sabbathing. And so we're going to look, we have a longer passage today, but Mark chapter 2, verse 18, and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 6. Mark 2, verse 18. (coughs) This is God's word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you have given us practices to grow in our relationship with you. 
And Lord, we confess that our hearts often turn these blessings into curses, some way, somehow. We make them a burden instead of a blessing. And so God, pray once again that you would woo our hearts to see the beauty and joy of fasting and Sabbathing because it draws us closer to you. Pray that you would do this by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna be very clear from the front uh, what my goal is today in this passage, and I think it is God's goal as well. Hopefully it is. But my hope for us today is that through the study of this passage that we would learn to grow in our love for fasting and for Sabbathing. I know it seems like trying to convince a kid to love broccoli, but, but these are good gifts that God has given to us. And so my hope is that if you love God, that you will love these practices because they draw you closer to God. And so my hope is that our love and affections for these practices will swell up as we seek to have more of God in our life. And so first, I wanna talk about the fruit of fasting for Jesus. Look at verse 18 with me again in chapter two. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page, what fasting means is to not eat food for a period of time to devote yourself to prayer, okay? Um, so that's what it means to fast. And at first glance, this question looks um, legitimate, right? Like, like, why is it that John's disciples fast, the Pharisees' disciples fast, but you don't fast and your disciples do not fast? And to understand Jesus' response, we need to understand the context that Jesus was speaking into. And so let me ask you this question. Maybe you study it in small group. I don't know. But, but can you guess how many times in the Old Testament, uh, how many times a year God commands his people to fast? Can you guess? Anyone make a guess? Go ahead. One time. One time a year, God says you shall fast. And it is the Day of Atonement. And you fast as you grieve over your sin, but also as you look to God as the atoner for your sin. And so it's, it's both a day of grieving, but also rejoicing that God makes atonement for your sin. Now, there are voluntary fasts that you can do throughout the year, but there is only one fast prescribed by God in the Old Testament, one time per year. Now, can you guess how many times the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees fasted a year? 104 times. 104 times a year, they fasted. Twice a week, on Mondays and Thursdays, they fasted. I don't know if you remember the story of the Pharisee and tax collector in the temple, but I wanna read you that story briefly because I think it's really helpful for what we're talking through. So it should be up here on the screen for you. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then here it is. I fast twice a week. That was the standard. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And then this verse is so important to understanding what's going on in our passage today. It says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's the thing with fasting and with really all Christian practices. 
The Pharisees were fasting as a means of exalting themselves before other men and exalting themselves before God. But Jesus says fasting is an opportunity to humble yourself before God, that God might be exalted in your heart. And it's intended for that reason to be hidden from others. So, so, so fasting was a big thing in that day. So was Sabbath. I mean, two of the major Christian practices that were talked about that dominated the scene. And so Jesus actually speaks into this practice of fasting from the Pharisees. And we read this in Matthew chapter six. It says, and when you fast, this is Jesus teaching, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting, get this, may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So get this, Jesus says, if you fast, you will get a reward. But if you fast for the sake of other people, if your audience is other people, your reward will come from those people. They will say, oh, look how religious they are. Look how holy they are. Look how devoted they are. Look, they, they fast. That's amazing, right? And so they'll do it for the applause of other people. They'll do it to exalt themselves. But if, if you engage in fasting humbly, in secrecy, just before an audience of God, then you'll get another reward a different reward, a greater reward that comes from your heavenly father. And the reward that you get from not eating food and going to the Lord in prayer, the reward is greater than what you sacrifice. And the reward you get in fasting is more of God, more of the one who loves you and whom you love. The purpose of fasting is not to lose weight or to get credit with God or show how good you are to other people. The main purpose of fasting is to devote yourself to a time of prayer to grow in your communion with God, to say, Lord, I need you more than food. In the Bible, people fast for several different reasons and all of it is to grow in their communion with God, but they, they fast uh, to seek God's strength, uh, to endure really difficult times in life. They fast to seek God's uh, uh, discretion on really big decisions. They fast to express their grief of living in a fallen world. They fast as an expression of their repentance of sin and seeking for God to give them help to overcome their sin. They fast simply to express their love and devotion and to have communion with God. And so in all of these ways, what they're doing in fasting is they're seeking to grow in their relationship with God, to get more of God into their life. John Piper describes fasting in this way. He says that fasting is a physical exclamation point at the end of a sentence. I need you. I want you. I long for you. You are my treasure. I want more of you. Oh, for the day when you would return. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The heart of fasting is longing. We are putting our stomachs where our heart is to give added intensity, and then hear this, and expressiveness to our ache for Jesus. I love that. Expressiveness to our ache for Jesus. And so that helps us understand Jesus' response to the question of why don't your disciples fast? Look at verse 19 with me. Jesus said to them, 
can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. If fasting is an expression of our ache for Jesus, it makes no sense for them to fast while they are with Jesus. You know, there are very few things that make me uh, cry on a consistent basis. I've told you this before, but one of the things that always makes my eyeball sweat at least a little bit are those YouTube videos uh, when a father or mother comes home, uh, they're on, you know, they've been deployed overseas because they're in the military, and they come home and they surprise their children. I, I was even tearing up as I was writing this, but, but they'll come into their child's classroom and surprise them, or, or they will come to their volleyball game and surprise them, and everything stops, and the child locks eyes, and they just melt. Sometimes to the floor, they just melt, and then they run and they jump into the arms of their mom or their dad. Because this is the one that they have been aching for. This is the one they have been longing for. This is the one that they have most likely been praying for. This is not a time for fasting. This is a time to go to Pizza Ranch, right? Like this is a time to celebrate, for feasting. This is a good day. The one we long for has come. The illustration that Jesus is using here is of a bride and a groom, these two people who long to be together, to be married together. And it's not a time for fasting, although that would be cheaper for the father of the bride if he's paying for everything, but it's not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting and celebration and joy because the ones that their heart ached for is finally theirs. Now, there might be fasting and prayer a year later after the honeymoon time wears off, but, that's, but during the wedding, it's a time of celebration and feasting and joy. You know, Jesus is the bridegroom of the choice of the church. He is the one that we long for. He is the one we rejoice in. And so it made no sense for the disciples to fast when the one they ache for was finally there. And then Jesus adds this really interesting wrinkle. Verse 20 he says, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. I think of being kidnapped. And then they will fast in that day. And so here Jesus affirms that there is a day coming where his followers, his disciples will fast. And that day is when he's taken away. And it could either be talking about when he's taken away to go to the cross or taken away to go up to heaven. I think it probably refers to both, just my opinion. But, but when Jesus goes, when Jesus is away, that is a time that his disciples will fast. You know, for us, Jesus is not walking the earth. He's not next to us like he was with the apostles. He is in heaven. And so today is a day of fasting, the, the day being like this time, this period, as we ache for Jesus to return. And when Jesus returns, our tears will be turned to laughter and our fasting will turn to feasting. Because on the day when Christ returns, the wait will be over. The one are so long for and aches for will be here. Now, just to get very practical for a quick second, when you think about fasting, when I think about fasting in my life, um, I think this passage is a wake-up call for me of, man, I don't really practice this uh, like I should or as frequently as I should. And I think one reason is because I don't appreciate fasting like I should. I also really appreciate the food that God made. I really like food. Um, but also, I just don't schedule it. Like, I don't plan for it. 
And so maybe this is an opportunity for you to say, you know, I want to put this in my calendar. I want to schedule a, a, a lunch or a day where I'm going to fast and just devote myself to prayer so that I can grow closer to God. Jesus goes on and he tells two parables that are uh, distant from our culture, but would have been very understandable in their culture. And so it's a little bit confusing to us, but I'll try to explain quickly. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, no one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So um, I know today we probably purchase mostly pre-shrunk clothing or clothing that doesn't shrink. Uh, my clothing seems to shrink because it gets tighter and tighter every year, but that might be a different story. But, um, but, but if, if our clothes shrink or if they tear, uh, usually what we do is we just donate them to Goodwill, right? Like we throw them away or donate them to Goodwill so they can throw them away. Uh, but for the majority of the history of the world, if your clothing tore, you fixed it. You put a patch on it. And so Jesus is speaking their language. He says, you don't take an untrunk path patch and put it on trunk clothing because then it's going to tear away once it goes through the wash. And what Jesus is trying to communicate here, and this is a little bit hard to understand, but what he's trying to communicate is that these two things, though they look the same, they are incompatible with one another, okay? And he continues that illustration, or to make that point with this illustration, verse 22. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So when they were making wine, they would take grapes, uh, smash them up, put them into wineskins. And as the grape juice would ferment, it would expand. And so would the wineskin. It would expand like a, a, a balloon, if you could think of that. It was pliable. But, but if they dumped out that old wine, and they put new wine in there, and it fermented, and the gases continued to make it expand, the wineskin would break, and the wine would go everywhere and would ruin everything. And so in the same way here, Jesus is saying, there is something incompatible from how I am living my life and the rules that you have put on everyone. And this pertains to fasting, but as we will see, this also pertains to Sabbathing. The kingdom of God is so glorious, so wonderful that the extra biblical man-centered religious rituals cannot contain the glory and the beauty of the God-centered, God-glorifying, God-saturated, God-pleasing, God-enjoying kingdom of Christ. And so he applies this first to fasting, but now on to Sabbathing. So let's look at the satisfaction of Sabbathing in Jesus. Verse 23 says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, as we read this, we need to ask the question, what law are they talking about when they say this is unlawful? Well, if you read the Old Testament, you will find out that they're not talking about God's law. They're not talking about the Bible. They're not talking about what the Bible said. Jesus and his disciples did nothing wrong according to the scriptures. But what they're talking about is the Pharisaical law. The Pharisees had, had chapters and chapters, I think it was 26 chapters if I remember correctly, 26 chapters of different rules regarding the Sabbath. But God does not have that many chapters. His command for the Sabbath is actually pretty clear. Uh, it's the fourth of the 10 commandments and this is what it says in Exodus chapter 20. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your 
God. So in the Old Testament, the Sabbath day was the seventh day of the week uh, because that was when God rested from creation. But in the New Testament, it is the first day of the week, Sundays, because that is the start of God's new creation in Christ. It goes on and says, on it you shall do, not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters, your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. In other words, on the Sabbath day, don't work. Don't make your kids work. Don't make your animals work. Don't make the stranger work. It's a day of rest and refreshment. Now, God leaves us a little bit vague on what is work and what is not work, and I think he does that intentionally because his focus is on a heart. But the Pharisees say, we don't like vagueness, so let's create these rules, all of these rules about what you can't do on the Sabbath, on what is work on the Sabbath. So, for example, they have a rule that you can only walk 1,999 steps on the Sabbath. If you go to 2,000, then you've worked, right? And so they would count their steps. I mean, you thought that was something new, right? Like counting your steps. I mean, the Pharisees were doing this a long time. They counted steps before counting steps was cool, right? And, and, but they weren't counting to see how many steps they could take, but how few steps they could take. They had a rule about not carrying anything heavier than a fig on the Sabbath. And so women would have earrings that were half a fig each so that they wouldn't carry more than a fig on the Sabbath. They had rules about not, not doing agriculture on the Sabbath. And so, so you couldn't spit on the Sabbath because you might fertilize a seed and it might grow up and then you've done work on the Sabbath. They had all of these crazy rules. And the Pharisees said the disciples and Jesus were doing something unlawful according to the Pharisees' rules, not according to Jesus' rules. You see, the two, the kingdom of God and the rules of the Pharisees were incompatible. Mark continues, verse 25. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, have you never read what David did? I love it. Jesus is talking to religious people and be like, have you never read the Bible? Like, (laughs) have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So Jesus is referring to a historical story that's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. In that story, King David, who is the anointed one of God, is running for his life, and he has a group of men with him. And they come to the the city of Nob, and he goes to the priest, and he asks for some common bread because they are starving to death. And the priest says, I don't have any common bread, but let me take the show bread and give that to you. Now, what the show bread is, is that every Sabbath day, they would cook 12 hot loaves of bread and bring it and put it on the altar before the Lord. And then the next Sunday, what they would do is they bring in 12 fresh hot loaves of bread, put it on the altar, and they would take the old loaves of bread and the priests would eat it. It was God's provision for the priests. Now, there is in the Old Testament a place where it says that it's intended for priests. I don't know if it's a command or if it's simply saying this is the intended purpose to provide for the priests. Either way, what Jesus is trying to communicate here is that the purpose of the Sabbath is to be a day of restoration, rejuvenation. It's supposed to be life-giving, not taking life away. And so for the priest to withhold the bread from these starving people on the Sabbath would accomplish the exact opposite of God's very purpose for the Sabbath, which is to bless the people and to restore life inside of them. And that's why here in verse 27, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for the man, not 
man for the Sabbath. Notice it doesn't say Sabbath was made for Christians or for Jews, but it was made for man. Sabbath is God's gift to humanity because God knows we are prone towards workaholism. God knows that we will put other things in front of gathering together to worship him. God knows that we are more interested often in making money than spending time with the creator of the universe. And so God the Father says, I love you so much. I am going to give you this day. Trust me with this. Rest, be refreshed, be rejuvenated, and worship me. I don't know if you know this, but legally in Wisconsin, I think it's still true, legally in Wisconsin, a car dealership cannot sell cars on Sunday. Uh, it is illegal for them to sell cars on Sunday. And so all the car dealerships are shut down and sometimes people go walk the lots in, but car dealerships are shut down on Sunday. Well, about seven years ago, there was rumblings of trying to change this rule, of trying to make it so that the car dealerships were all open on Sundays. But it quickly got shut down. Um, not by the Christians, it got shut down by the car dealers. They didn't wanna be open on Sundays. They said, we, this is our day of rest, of refreshment, where we can get away. And I don't want competition open on Sundays. I don't want to be open on Sundays. Give us this day off. Please do not make it legal to sell cars on Sundays. We don't want it. You see, God has given this gift of rest for us one day a week. You know, we love Christmas. And the reason why we love Christmas is because anything that can be shut down is shut down. It is a day of rest. It is a day in which the world slows down. It's a day in which we focus on Christ, our Savior, and our hearts are made full in him. Listen, this is how good God is. Your God is so gracious, so merciful, so wonderful that he does not want you to have Christmas once a year. He wants you to have it once a week. That's how much God loves you. This is how good this gift of the Sabbath is for humanity. And we can't expect the government to legislate it. It's something that we must practice to a world that will not understand it. Now, there are certainly jobs of necessity, like being a police officer, firefighter, hospice care, that you just have to do the work on Sundays. But imagine if Sundays was a day of rest. I just wonder how many families that are broken would still be together. I wonder how much of our anxiety would dissipate if we if we enjoyed this good gift from God. Verse 27, Jesus continues, he said, for he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he says, so the son of man, talking about himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, listen, you're trying to tell me how to observe the Sabbath? I made the Sabbath. <laughs> I created the Sabbath. I instituted the Sabbath. The Pharisees trying to tell Jesus how to do the Sabbath is like me trying to tell Elon Musk how to drive one of his cars, a Tesla, right? It just doesn't make sense because I didn't make it. And so Jesus is saying, listen, this Sabbath is a good gift and you guys are ruining it. You're making it something awful. All right, it continues on and we'll go quicker, I promise. Verse one of chapter three says, and Jesus entered the synagogue. Uh, again, on the Lord's day, he goes to worship in the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. 
Matthew also records this encounter and he provides some information. I think it's very helpful to show us why Jesus was so angry. In Matthew 12, it says, Jesus said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I think the point is clear. Jesus is saying, listen, you're gonna, you're gonna help the sheep out on the Sabbath that you're gonna slaughter and eat pretty soon. But a person made in the image of God, you're gonna delay your help and mercy to them? It makes no sense. And it made Jesus angry. Friends, the Sabbath day is not a day for worldly employment or work for the most parts, but it's a day of restoration for our bodies and our souls. It is a day also to be filled, as we see here, with mercy. This may mean that you are helping a car out of a ditch like a couple guys did a few weeks ago. This may mean that you're going to visit people in nursing homes or in prisons. It's a day to be filled with mercy, to love the friendless, to help the elderly. It's a day of rest, a day of worship, a day of necessity, but also a day of mercy. And again, we can see how badly the Pharisees twisted this in verse six. Look there with me. It says, the Pharisees went out and immediately, that's on the Sabbath day, just ironic, held counsel with the Herodians, which are the Romans. Uh, Jesus brings people together in unity when they love him and also when they hate him. So they, he counseled with the Herodians against him how to destroy them. And so because Jesus healed this man with the withered hand, because Jesus gave life and restored life to this person, they want to take his life. Do you see what man-made religion does? It turns the good gifts of God, of grace and mercy, into burdens instead of blessings. Well, one day that would happen. One day they would seize Jesus to destroy him. And, and although he was found to be innocent, they took him to the cross. And at the cross, he took on our sin, our, our, our crooked hearts, our deceived hearts. He took on our Sabbath breaking upon himself at the cross and he paid for it in full. And he rose on the third day, creating a new Sabbath day, representing the new life, the new joy, and the new rest that we have in Christ. The Sabbath is a great gift from God to bring restoration to our body and soul. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Let me end with this. Um, I have a friend who goes to another church, great guy, loves the Lord, just awesome, awesome dude. And uh, I watch sports with him. I'm trying to keep this as vague as possible. He knows I'm preaching about this, so he'll probably listen to this as well. Um, but we were watching a sporting event together. And uh, I'm not kidding you. We, we talked, this is a couple months ago, we talked about uh, fasting and the Sabbath. I know, it seems weird. Never hang out with pastors. This is what your conversations are gonna be. And, and so he said to me, he goes, you know, you know, there was a while back where I fasted uh, several times a month to lose weight, but I've never fasted for God. I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, I felt really bad about that. I'm like, all right, do you still feel bad? He's like, no, I don't feel bad anymore. I'm like, why did you fast for God? He's like, no, I just stopped feeling bad about it. I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's one way to do it. Uh, and, and then we started talking about the Sabbath for some reason, I don't know how it came up, um, and, and he's like, yeah, we don't really believe in the Sabbath. You know, it's not really our thing. And I'm just thinking, man, you are missing out. You are missing out. These are practices that God has given to us so that we can grow closer to God. They are such a blessing and you are missing out. When we observe the Sabbath day, it is a way of looking back to God's finished work of creation where on the seventh day he rested. It's also a way of looking back to the cross when Christ finished our salvation, 
and accomplish it so that we can rest in him. But it also points us to the future, looking forward to Christ's return. John Newton, a name that many of you may recognize, wrote this about the Sabbath. He said, safely through another week, God has brought us on our way. Let us now a blessing seek, waiting in his courts today. What a beautiful picture. Day of all, the week the best, and hear this, emblem of eternal rest. The writer of Hebrews says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, talking about heaven. Friends, here's the thing. The Sabbath day filled with rest and worship and fellowship and mercy with the people of God is the closest you are going to get to heaven on this earth. Sabbath is a appetizer of heaven. It is such a blessing, not a burden. You know, often when we talk about fasting the Sabbath day, people want to get into the details like, okay, can I do this on the Sabbath or that on the Sabbath? And how long should I fast? And when should I fast? And all of those things. And those are good conversations to have, I think, in the right mindset. But the point is this. These are gifts that God has commanded that are still applicable for the people of God today. And they should be cherished by the people of God as a gift from God that we might experience more of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful. So thankful that you give us these good practices. And even though we sometimes corrupt them with our thinking, Lord, they are good gifts from you to draw us closer to you, Lord. And so God, pray that we would enjoy these things, enjoy fasting, enjoy Sabbathing, because we know, Lord, that you will use them to draw us closer to you, to give us greater joy in our creator. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded, we are reminded that you have accomplished the work of salvation and that we can rest in your son, Jesus Christ, that we have shalom with you, peace with you, because you have done it all on our behalf. Help us, Lord, help our restless souls to rest in you today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.